Then the word of the Lord came to Jonah the second time, saying, Arise, go to Nineveh, that great city, and call out against it the message that I tell you. So Jonah arose and went to Nineveh, according to the word of the Lord. Now Nineveh was an exceedingly great city, three days' journey in breath. Jonah began to go into the city going a day's journey, and he called out, Yet forty days, and Nineveh shall be overthrown. And the people of Nineveh believed God. They called for a fast and put on sackcloth from the greatest of them to the least of them. The word reached the king of Nineveh, and he arose from his throne, removed his robe, covered himself with sackcloth and satin ashes. And he issued a proclamation and published throughout Nineveh, by the decree of the king and his nobles, let neither man nor beast, herd nor flock, taste anything. Let them not feed or drink water, but let man and beast be covered with sackcloth, and let them call out mightily to God. Let everyone turn from his evil way and from the violence that is in his hands. Who knows, God may turn and relent and turn from his fierce anger so that we may not perish. When God saw what they did, how they turned from their evil way, God relented of the disaster that he had said he would do to them, and he did not do it. This is the word of the Lord. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, We thank you for your good and beautiful word. We pray that it would be at work within us this morning, that we would not only understand it, but that we would be transformed by it, and that by it your spirit would be moving within us, that we might be obedient, that we might be overjoyed at what we learn, that we might be a transformed people. Lord, in all this, it is not so that we might be built up, not so that I might look great, not so that we may be a church that extols our own virtues, but Lord, we pray this morning that we would gain a clearer and a fuller glimpse of who you are and of your glory and of your goodness and of your mercy. Help us, O Lord. In Jesus' name, amen. You may be seated. I was talking to Will Grover this week, who is well in here, is he out? Well, uh, and I found out that Will actually, in this past uh, Sunday school series, had been teaching through Jonah, so a number of our kids in the room uh, have recently studied this story. And we were talking about the passage, um, and Will pointed out something that I think we all ought to keep in the front of our minds as we think about this story, something that can seem obvious, but that maybe it's so obvious we need to be reminded, which is the question, who is the hero of this story. Who is the hero of the story of Jonah? And clearly the answer is not Jonah. If you're reading the stories of Jonah as an example to be followed or somebody to be held up and esteemed, uh, you have dramatically misunderstood the point of the story. And yet, the amazing thing is, God did amazing, powerful things through Jonah. Everything that we see Jonah do from the beginning to the end essentially points us to say, this guy did not have it all together. And yet, what does God do through this incredibly flawed, broken man? But he does amazing and powerful things. So we're left with this wonderful tension 
that we want to learn from, Jer- from Jonah's mistakes. We want to learn from his unfaithfulness. We look at him and we say, I don't want to do that. I don't want to be like that. And yet at the same time, our prayer, I hope, is that we want God to work through us as powerfully as he worked through Jonah. Right? We pray that God would help us to be faithful where Jonah was somewhat unfaithful. We want to be loving where Jonah seems not to have been loving. We want to be, you know, we want our hearts to be on fire for the word of the Lord where Jonah intentionally said, I do not want to speak the word of the Lord. And yet at the same time, as we seek to do those things, we have to acknowledge that it is precisely people like Jonah that God chooses to use. It's precisely the broken people, the sinful people. Thankfully, that means that he chooses to use people like us. So I'm hoping this week we'll keep that tension in mind. There are going to be a number of things that are just practical in this story. You don't have to look overly deeply into the story to notice that what Jonah does is very similar to what we are called to do. And yet as we look at those practical things, our goal is that we are reminded at every step along the way that it's not by our own power, it is not by our own faithfulness even or our righteousness, but it is because God has chosen the weak and the foolish things in this world to put to shame the things that are strong. And ultimately, as we see in Nineveh, even to save a city that did not know him. Because, as Will taught his class, and as we need to be reminded constantly as we study the Bible, it is not Jonah who is the hero of the story, it is God. Now, I've titled this morning's sermon, The Arising Church. I'm following Bill's uh, titling habits here. Last week, we looked at what it means to be the humbled church, the church like Jonah that is uh, swallowed up in the belly of the fish, praying and acknowledge, excuse me, acknowledging sin and acknowledging the fact that salvation is of the Lord. And now we ask, what does it look like to be the arising church? At the very beginning of the story, actually at the very beginning of the whole book, God says to Jonah, Arise, go to Nineveh, that great city, and call out before it, Sorry, and call out against it, for their evil has come up before me. And Jonah, of course, arises and goes the opposite direction. Jonah says, okay, you say go to Nineveh, I'm going to Joppa. You say go east, I'm getting on the first boat west. But as we have heard the last two weeks, God had a plan for Jonah. Long before Jonah stepped foot on a boat, long before he left for Joppa, Before he even heard that word of the Lord, God saw his heart, God knew him, and God had his eye on a particular fish in the Mediterranean and was saying, don't go far. I'm going to need you right around here. And now, as Jonah is sitting on the shore, covered, we can assume, in fish vomit, God says again to Jonah, arise, go to Nineveh. And in response, finally, we are told that Jonah arose and went to Nineveh. Now before we even think about what it was that he went to Nineveh to do, I want to point out that word arise, as it keeps coming up in the story. Now it's a fairly common word, I don't want to try to pack too much meaning into it, but I think 
the fact that that word keeps coming up and the way that it's being used points us to something that the author is doing here. I think it helps us to understand the nature of the story. See, we're given this impression that there was a situation that man had become comfortable with, that Jonah had become comfortable with, certainly that the Ninevites had become comfortable with, but which God was by no means comfortable or happy with. And so he says to Jonah, arise, get up. Do not rest in the way that things are, but rather see things the way that God sees them. Go and be a part of what God is doing. Arise, go to Nineveh. Jonah looked at Nineveh and he saw a city of heathens, a city who did not know God, a city in opposition to God and his covenant people, Israel. Jonah saw a city that was at the heart of the Assyrian Empire. That name may bring up some reminiscences. The Assyrian Empire was the empire eventually that conquered Israel. Even before that happened, Jonah kind of lives about 50 years before that event, so he didn't know about that. But even before Jonah, there was a period where uh, essentially Israel was a conquered nation. They had a king because Assyria said, you can have a king. Uh, But they did and went and fought the ways that Assyria told them. And right in the middle of that Assyrian nation is the city Jonah, sorry, is the city Nineveh. So in other words, if Nineveh was going to be destroyed, Jonah didn't want to bring a a word of warning, right? Jonah wanted to bring popcorn. (laughs) Jonah said, this is a city who... If I can be there, I want to be there when it's going down. Jonah was reminded, though, as we all need to be reminded, that God's care, God's concern, stretches beyond our sphere of influence. Stretches beyond the things that we see, stretches beyond what we imagine God would be concerned with. Jonah did what all mankind tends to do. He said, God probably cares about this much. He probably cares about this people. He probably cares about this kind of thing. And if you are beyond that, then you are beyond his care. You are beyond his concern. Certainly, you are beyond his love. His love is not expansive enough to include you if you are not sufficiently close to this thing that I am a part of. one of the main points of the story of Jonah is exactly that. God is not only the God of Israel. He's not only the God of Judah. He is the creator of all things. And his concern extends to all that he has created. This wasn't a message that Jonah wanted to hear. The Apostle Paul puts it this way in Romans 3. He says, uh, asking, is God the God of Jews only? Is he not the God of Gentiles also? Essentially asking, was there some other God out there that created these lands and our God only created Israel? Excuse me. He says, no. He says, is he not the God of Gentiles also? Yes, of Gentiles also, since God is one who will justify the circumcised, that is Israel, through faith, and the uncircumcised through faith. Some of the Christian church's greatest moments have been times 
when it contradicted this assumption that God only cares about my type of people. Paul gives some incredible words in Romans 13, and similarly in 1 Timothy 2. He says, honor and respect your leaders. And we hear that and we say, oh, that's a nice thing. That's a, that's a very polite thing to do. Honor and respect your leaders. And then we think about who were his leaders. Well, his leaders were the people who, shortly after his writing that, put him to death. His leaders were not the sort of people who, if you heard their stories, would make you say, oh, yeah, he was a nice guy. No, these were people who were more than willing to crucify their Savior, Jesus. There were people who were more than willing to persecute the church, who were more than willing um, to commit some pretty terrible atrocities. And yet Paul says, no, honor them, respect them, pray for them. We think also of St. Patrick, uh, who's not the patron saint of green and uh, the things associated with St. Patrick's Day, but was a real-life Christian in the, uh, I believe, the 5th century. He's taken as a slave when he was 16 years old by Irish pirates, as the story goes. He lived as a slave for six years, which is a long time. You think about you're 16 to 22, a lot happens. It's a long time to be a slave. It's funny, he was taken as a slave and he was made to do the work of a shepherd. Somewhat poignant image there that this man who was forced into being a shepherd then found his freedom from his slavers and then decided, you know what, no. I have become a Christian. As Actually, while he was a slave, he, he came to believe in the faith that had been his parents. And he decided, again, to be a shepherd, but a different kind of shepherd. He decided to go back to that people who had enslaved and persecuted him to bring the gospel to them. This is the choice that every era of Christians gets to make. Will we give in to the idea that there are certain types of people, certain regions of people, certain people who make a certain type of choice about their life, whom God's love cannot reach, whose opposition to the gospel, as we are all in opposition to the gospel until we come to faith in Christ, cannot be overcome by the power of the Holy Spirit working through the proclamation of the gospel. Are there people like that around us? Are there people like that in the world? We have the choice to say yes or no. We have the choice to look at those people who we are tempted to think of. They are beyond God's salvation and say, no, God looked at a city like Nineveh and thought they are not beyond my care. They are not beyond my love. And then we ask the question, if we believe in that power of the Holy Spirit, what are we going to do about it? I've been reflecting personally recently on the topic of evangelism. As we look at the story of Jonah, I think we can't help but ask, where are the parallels here? Jonah was sent to an unbelieving nation. We, as the Christian church, are sent to those all around us who have not come to believe in Christ. We heard from Kathleen a few minutes ago about the ways that our church is supporting this work of sending missionaries to bear the gospel to those who need the good news. 
I could approach this really in two ways, and I've, I've wrestled through this throughout the week. Do I kind of bring this as a message and try to guilt people? Um, I think that is the wrong thing to do, because I think really what, what I have noticed is more a sense of personal conviction. And so I'm going to talk through it that way. I have noticed in my own life that I have not sufficiently trusted that God works in this way. I can admit that, I think, before you all. This may not be the best place for a confession, but I think I can admit that before you all. You start to think, man, I don't know. If, if I shared the good news with that person, I don't know if they would be able to receive it. And you get into this thing of thinking, you know, maybe there are people who are more likely to receive God's word. You know, it's like maybe you know, like this, this person over here, well, they've made some really bad choices in their life. They're probably pretty far from God, but this person kind of has it all together, and they're probably pretty close to the kingdom of God. What we see in the story of Jonah is God doesn't make those distinctions. And frequently when we think, oh, this person is probably pretty close to the kingdom of God, frequently what that means is this person doesn't think they need God. In a city like the Ninevites came to this point that they realized, oh, we need God. We need to turn from our sin. We need some good news. And the amazing thing, actually, as we look at the story of Jonah, is that they didn't even get a message of good news. It wasn't a message of turn to God and he will love you and forgive you and be kind to you and you will flourish and have your best life. The message was 40 days and you're being destroyed. It's not exactly good news. It's not clear whether this is all of what Jonah preached or whether it's kind of made concise here in the text, but the text really does make it seem like this is essentially his sermon. 40 days and you're going to be destroyed. In Hebrew, five words. It's a pretty quick sermon prep. It's roughly one-third of a haiku. The short third. Jonah doesn't try to convince the Ninevites of their sin. He doesn't extol the loving mercy of God. He doesn't even call the Ninevites to repentance. He just says, yet 40 days and Nineveh shall be overthrown. And they listened. There was absolutely no reason for the Ninevites to listen to Jonah. By all rights, he should have either been laughed at or thrown in prison. And yet one of the most incredible statements in all of Scripture is, the people of Nineveh believed God. The people of Nineveh believed God. Not only did they believe, but they took action. They arose. We're told that they called for a fast and put on sackcloth, from the greatest of them to the least of them. The word reached the king of Nineveh, and he arose from his throne, removed his robe, covered himself with sackcloth and sat in ashes. And he issued a proclamation and published throughout Nineveh, by the decree of the king and his nobles, let neither man nor beast, herd nor flock, taste anything. Let them not feed or drink water, which is more, if you've ever done a fast, usually you say, okay, still have to drink water. <laughs> um, but don't feed or even drink water but let man and beast be covered in sackcloth and let them call out mightily to God. Let everyone turn from his evil way and from the violence that is in his hands. Who knows? God may, God might turn 
and relent from his fierce anger so that we may not perish. In some ways, it's a ridiculous scene. Uh, Not only do you have these pagan Ninevites repenting at possibly the world's worst sermon, they clothe themselves in sackcloth and ashes, and then they clothe their animals in sackcloth and ashes. Apparently, there were cows and oxen and chickens and whatnot just walking around wearing sackcloth. I imagine if you were a merchant or something coming into the city, you would look around and say, these people have gone insane. (laughs) What is going on? It's a ridiculous picture, but I think it is, when you think about the meaning behind it, it is a beautiful picture. It's a picture not just of, of, of a heart repentance, but a repentance that is just incredibly wholehearted and full. It's a repentance, dare I use the word, that is systemic. It's a repentance of the whole way of doing things, not merely oh, I did something bad, but no, this whole thing was going for destruction, was going the wrong direction, was sinning against God. This whole thing needs to change us and our servants and our families and even our livestock, our cattle and our donkeys. This whole thing needs to change, needs to repent. Now here's the question. If the Ninevites could repent of their sin... If the Ninevites could plead for forgiveness merely on the off chance that God might relent of their destruction, how much more ought we to strive against our sin, to repent of our sin, knowing with a complete clarity and certainty that God has forgiven us in Christ? The amazing thing of the city of Nineveh is they repent with nothing but a message of condemnation, And yet we, thousands of years later, hear those words of warning and yet with such a warm and a full and a beautiful message of hope and love and forgiveness, how much more ought we, who are in that same place, to repent of our sin, to take our sins seriously? They didn't know the promise of the gospel. They had not heard the good news of Christ. They didn't even have a promise of temporal, right, of temporary salvation. They didn't even have a knowledge of the scriptures. They didn't know who God was. And yet they repented. They repented and they had everything around them repent. But we have the sure promise. We have a hope that is not passing away. Not only of protection from earthly destruction, but of an everlasting, of an eternal salvation. We have the knowledge of Christ crucified, God in the flesh, showing his love and mercy towards us, dying on our behalves if we will put our faith in him. What the Ninevites hoped for, not even knew, but hoped for in part, we know in full. And we receive that same message from Christ. We hear As John the Baptist preached, as Christ preached, as Paul preached, repent, for the kingdom of God is at hand. I love how John puts it in 1 John chapter 2. He says, my little children, I am writing these things to you so that you may not sin. 
Now, the next part of that is beautiful as well in that he says, but if anyone does sin, we have an advocate with the Father, Jesus Christ, the righteous. We come together every week and we confess. I've said it before, but earlier in my life I wondered, you know, like, but what if I didn't sin this week? And as I've gotten older, that's never really been an issue. <laughs> and yet we should take in seriousness John's first statement as well. My little children, I'm writing these things to you so that you may not sin. It's because there is forgiveness, in fact, that you ought not to sin, to strive not to sin, to take seriously to repent. To take and to make use of the means which God has given us to repent. I think about whatever it is, if there is something that you frequently think of during that prayer of confession, I don't know what it is, I, I look out and I don't know for probably a single one of you what that thing would be, but we all have things that come up frequently, I know I do. And we ask, have we repented like the Ninevites repented? Not merely saying, oh, I'm sorry, but saying, no, this whole thing needs to change. I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to make use of everything that God has given me, make a full repentance to the greatest degree to which I possibly can. To make use of my fellow church members as, as I strive to figure out how do I become someone who is more like Christ. To, to make use of the word and prayer and fasting, of confession, not only, although certainly to God, but to one another. My little children, I am writing these things to you so that you may not sin. What would it look like, essentially, for us to put on the sackcloth and ashes like Nineveh? Now, I've had three essential points in this sermon. Arise and go. Arise and repent. And finally, arise and rejoice. Verse 10 tells us, When God saw what they did, how they turned from their evil way, God relented of the disaster that he had said he would do to them, and he did not do it. As we look at history, as we look at God's plan of salvation for his people, this is essentially where we were. If you have not yet embraced the love and mercy of Christ that he died for your sins, that he has invited you into loving fellowship with himself, and this is where you are. This message of condemnation of yet 40 days and Nineveh will be destroyed is, it was true of Nineveh and it is true for the world that God takes sin seriously. God takes the ways that we live, the ways that we have turned from him, the ways that we oppose him in the ways that we live. He takes that seriously. And there, over and over in scripture, he says, there, there is a destruction, there is a judgment coming, there is a result to all this sin. In fact, the destruction of Nineveh pales in comparison to the foreshadowed judgment that Jesus spoke of so often of the judgment of sin for all eternity, the thing that we often refer to as hell. Not merely that we refer to it that way, but that scripture speaks of it that way. 
And yet, the forgiveness that Nineveh received, the forgiveness that was made apparent and proclaimed through Jonah, is only the slightest and the smallest shadow of the forgiveness and the salvation and the new life that is available in Jesus Christ. You see, after Jonah's message, after this wonderful and incredible repentance, we have another book, just a couple books later. It's the book of Nahum. It's not as popular. You see, the book of Nahum describes the eventual destruction of Nineveh. They repented, and yet on our own, in the the power of the human heart to repent, you see, we still have that urge and that desire to make things about this guy. We have that urge and that desire to say, okay, I will repent because I see this thing coming and I don't want to be destroyed. And yet, how easily does the human heart turn back towards itself, turn back to idolatry, turn back to sin? And eventually, not long after all of this happens in the book of Nahum, we read that God did, in fact, destroy the city of Nineveh. You see, if our salvation rested on our own faithfulness, on our own ability to repent, on our own ability, like Jonah, to go and be faithful in the things that we are supposed to do. If our salvation rested in any way on our own goodness, we would have no lasting hope. We would have nothing. We would have no salvation. And yet... We receive these things not in the way that Jonah offered them, not in the partial way that Nineveh received them, but we receive these things with an incredible fullness in Christ. We receive these things in which Christ has said, yes, you have sinned, and not only that, but you are going to keep sinning. I pray that you will not. I pray that you will be sanctified and made holy more and more in your life, and yet, as we each have encountered in our own lives, sin is still a present reality for the believer. And yet, Christ has said, you will be saved not because of your goodness, but because of my goodness given to you, imputed to you, counted for your righteousness and your sin. Just as bad as the sin of Nineveh is counted to him. And if we have that kind of salvation, how much more ought we, like Jonah, to go, to bear that message, to share the good news, and tell people, expecting that God, who worked through his Holy Spirit in the city of Nineveh, so that by the world's most half-hearted sermon, an entire city came to faith and repentance, how much more ought we to go who have heard this incredible message of forgiveness in Christ and believe that God, by his Holy Spirit, is preparing hearts repent and believe? How much more ought we like the Ninevites to go and repent, to arise and not be content with the way that things have been in our lives, whether in sins, whether in ways of living that don't honor God, but to say no because of this incredible, beautiful forgiveness, this incredible person who has desired to be in communion with me when there was nothing in me worth his communing with. Because of that, how much more ought we to strive to live a holy and a just and a righteous life? And how much more, finally, ought we, as people who have heard this message of Christ, to rejoice? To say, God, what an incredible salvation.
What an incredible forgiveness that someone like I, someone whose sin, like the sin of Nineveh, cried out for destruction. How much more ought we to rejoice that he has sent his son?